week we're talking about this Anatomy of Disciples series, and uh, we're kind of wrapping it together. And I want to tell you the story of a man in the Old Testament named Jacob. Uh, the Anatomy of Disciples series is all about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, and uh, what it is to make disciples. Because Jesus' uh, final command at the end of the book of Matthew is to go into all the world and make disciples. And so that's kind of the job of every church, is of every Christian, uh, to go through the world and make uh, more and more disciples of all people in all places uh, and uh, all, in all time in history we've supposed to, we're supposed to be doing this. But that making disciples is kind of a nebulous thing. It's like how do you make a disciple? And so we've been talking about that over the last eight weeks, seven weeks, and today. And today we're wrapping it up to talk about what it is that Jesus does in our life and the difference between just like a person who's familiar with Jesus and a person who's like actually a follower of Jesus. I think everybody kind of has an idea of Jesus. Uh, there's very few people that can't say uh, that, that Jesus is a person. Uh, atheists are atheistic towards the God of the Bible. Uh, there is this, uh, Jesus is a guy in history, maybe the most influential guy in history. Whether you uh, even if you don't believe in his deity or his vir virgin birth, you would have to believe that Jesus... I mean, there are people who claim he's not a real, actual person. That's a ridiculous claim to me because there's other extra-biblical historical accounts of this, but yada, yada, yada. Uh, when we actually think about Jesus, even if you don't believe he's the Son of God, don't believe he was born of a virgin, don't believe he died and rose again, uh, Jesus is still the most influential person in the history of the world. The second most influential person in the history of the world is Abraham. Abraham is claimed to be the father of all three of the major world religions. Uh, Islam, uh, Judaism, and Christianity all trace themselves back to Abraham and, and find their lineage coming from Abraham. And Abraham has uh, children, and his children have children. And this is where we'll, the scripture today will begin in Genesis chapter 25. Uh, the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, uh, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. And the babies jostled within her. So she was having twins. And she said, why is this happening to me? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. And I'm going to stop there just for a second. So you know in their society, when you were born, eldest is the thing that mattered. The family uh, inheritance was divided up into an equal number of shares, right? And the oldest would receive a double portion. So if there were three kids, it would be divided up, you know, into four. So half would go to the oldest and the other half would be divided between the other two who are the youngest. Being oldest is all that mattered to uh, you as far as your... Uh, understanding of your position in the family. If you're an oldest child, you're like, this should still be true today, right? 
but if you're uh, second, third, fourth to eighth, ninth, tenth, uh, there is uh, something about this system that you don't like. But it's the system that everyone lived in. Everyone. So when this is, this, the Lord answers Rebecca in her prayer, and he says, there are two nations in your womb. Rebecca goes, that's fantastic news. Like my twins, uh, that means my twins, A, are boys, which in their culture was desirable. And so these two boys would, be, would have many children and many descendants so that their descendants would actually become two whole nations. But then it says, and two people from within you will be separated. And I don't know anything that breaks a mother's heart more than knowing that their children ahead of time will be separate from each other, will be apart from each other. And one will be stronger than the other, which is okay, we expect that, and I can tell you which one, the older. And then this line comes in, and the older will serve the younger. It was completely backwards to what anybody would think or say. This would be the part when the Lord is answering Rebecca, I assume, in her prayer where she would go, maybe I just ate bad pizza last night. Like, this isn't something that the Lord would say. She was a very early adapter of pizza. But uh, there is this uh, shock that she would have felt in hearing that the younger would be the leader and the older would serve the younger. So the scripture continues. When the time came for her to give birth, there were two twin, sorry, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, his whole body like a hairy garment. It's kind of good that we did uh, child dedications today because you can always think, at least my kid didn't come out like a hairy garment, right? They may, they may be crying, they may be fussy, but they didn't come out and you didn't think, we should name this kid Harry because he's so hairy, all right? Like, and Harry is a great name. Harold is a great name. But to be named Harry because you're hairy, I mean, extend your creativity a little. But the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. And if you have little subtitles in your Bibles, Esau probably means hairy. And after this, his brother came out, with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. And if you have little footnotes in your Bible, uh, Jacob uh, means grabs the heel, which was actually an idiom for someone who was a deceiver. Much like we have in our culture, we have things like you would say someone is two-faced if, uh, if they're a hypocrite. But we don't actually think they have two faces. Uh, so it, these are just little idioms. And people would say, oh, he's a heel grabber. That would mean he's someone who deceives the people around him. And so the first child comes out. This lets you know a little bit about their upbringing. The first child comes out, and they notice how hairy it is, and they say, I got an idea for a name, Harry. And the second one comes out grabbing a heel of the first twin, and they say, oh, a heel grabber. Oh, let's call him heel grabber which was both of those names were insulting to the children. <laughs> True, but insulting to the children. Jacob actually, in a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of way, lived up to his name his whole life. His whole life was spent 
deceiving people in order to get his own way. In fact, the story jumps right here. It says, it, I'm not putting this on the screen, but it says the boys grew up. Esau became a hunter and lived in the open country because he had a natural sweater on. And Jacob, <laughs> it doesn't say that in the scripture, it's just inferred, but, and Jacob uh, was more a man of the household. And Esau's out hunting one time, and he comes back, and he's really hungry, and he actually trades his birthright uh, for some soup. He actually is so hungry, and Jacob actually deceives him into giving up his double portion. And not just his double portion, but his, uh, like his role as the future leader of the family. The switch happens like right away in the narrative. It doesn't track them growing up at all. And then we start to see that the dad liked one of them and the mom liked the other. And the dad liked the tough, rough-and-tumble boy who was out in the woods, and the mom liked the sweet, kind boy who stayed and helped with her house and had household skills. And then marriage, when you pick a twin and fight for that twin, your marriage tends to go from good to awful really, really quickly. Because you, the kids were not only competitive amongst the, themselves, because one was a tough guy and the other guy was really deceptive, but the twins uh, are encouraged to do this by their parents who actually have this weird thing going on. You see, the prophecy was given to Rebecca. And we don't know that Rebecca ever tells Isaac that the Lord told her that the younger or that the older will serve the younger. We don't know that she ever told him that. And so eventually it comes time when their father Isaac is old and his eyesight is actually going and he's going to pass the blessing on. And the blessing is actually like, you know, their religion and legal things were all mixed up together and it's kind of the passing on of all of the spirit of God on Isaac and the role of him as a patriarch of the, not just his family, but of his faith, of the people of God, he's going to be passing that on. And Rebecca actually conspires with Jacob to steal this blessing. It, there's a hilarious moment in the story, I'll just tell you this, in case you don't know the story, where the, Jacob says, what if he, when he puts his hand on me, he notices, like, my skin is smooth, you know, like Jacob had very, very little hair on him. And they actually uh, kill a goat to eat, and they take the goat hair and put it on him, on his neck, and down uh, across his shoulders. So that when Isaac puts his hand on him, he recognizes his oldest son. So when we're talking hairy, we're talking hairy, right? Like if, like there are some of us that are hairy by nature, but we don't think, it's like I'm a goat right? <laughs> That's <laughs> like we read this story, we teach it in Sunday school, but we never really appreciate the mockery that can be had of Esau. Now Esau loved the Lord and he'll be in heaven and he'll smack you for that, but you'll be able to recognize him because he looks like a goat, but I don't know <laughs> what his glorified body will be in his hair situation, but Jacob actually goes in and deceives his father whose eyesight is failing and steals the blessing. And Esau declared, Esau goes in to receive his blessing because he went out in the field and hunted and had a meal to serve his father. And his father says, well, who are you? I just gave your blessing 
to someone else, and I can't legally give it to you now. And Esau declares he's going to kill Jacob. And Rebekah hears this, and Rebekah knows Esau. He's a good hunter, but he's also kind of a hothead and makes bad choices. And so they get rid of Jacob, and they, get him, they send him off to the cousin's place, and let's get him to a safe place. He runs away. And the two brothers are separated. But Rebekah got what she wanted. Jacob got what he wanted. He managed to talk his way and manipulate his way and deceive his way into being the number one in God's house, in God's people. The Bible talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when it should talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. The name Jacob shouldn't be as popular as it is. The name Esau should be. But Jacob stole that from him. He deceived and manipulated his way into getting what he wanted. And Jacob kind of had this relationship with God his whole life. Where God was kind of there, it was a part of his life. If Jacob lived today, he would go to church and do those things. And from all outward appearances, he would look like a good Christian person. He might uh, volunteer in his local church or be an usher or an elder or something like that. But inside, in his heart, he was looking out for himself. He was taking care of life himself. While Jesus was his good friend, Jesus was not his Lord. Well, he didn't even know Jesus, but he will in a second. God, for Jacob, was a good part of his life, whereas God wants to be the entirety of a person's life. Jacob was a fan of God. He was familiar with God. And that fandom and familiarity actually led to keep him from actually being transformed by God, from actually being able to serve God. It's kind of a strange thing that happens, but there are people who will grow up knowing the Lord, but they really know about the Lord, and then when they become adults, maybe they go away to college or something like that, they fall away from their faith. And we blame their university professor who opened their mind to dangerous things or something like that, but it really just revealed that their commitment to God was never something that was theirs. It was just kind of a part of the atmosphere that they lived in. It was the water that they swimmed in. Swam in. Good night. <laughs> I went to university a lot. It didn't work. <laughs> but there is... Uh, Jacob was just kind of there, and God was just kind of there, and as long as they didn't get in each other's business, everything was cool. And I think that this, I think a lot of people have this kind of relationship with God. Where you don't really lose control, you don't really give control of your life over. God is a part of your life, but he's a good part of your life. And you don't let him be a bad part of your life. And you don't let him mess your life up because you've got a good thing going on. Well, Jacob and Esau ended up later in their life through a series of circumstances, they were going to meet. And if you can imagine what it's like 
to be away from your family for a long time and be estranged, hostile, have a hostility cause that estrangement, and then to be going back, it creates some extra anxiety. Maybe at Thanksgiving or at Christmas coming up, you have some extra anxiety because you know there's people in your family who don't appreciate you or you don't appreciate them, and that's going to be an awkward conversation. And it turns the level up when the last time you saw each other, the other person said, I'm going to kill you. And that's why you decided not to go home for Thanksgiving anymore. The whole death thing. Well, Jacob is going to see his brother. And this is how the story is told. If you've never heard this story, it's going to blow your mind. You're going to love this. That night, Jacob got up and he took his two wives. That's called mistake one. But (laughs) that night, Jacob... Having two wives, not having wives, all right? Having polygamy. Good night. Okay. That was dangerous. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. And the man said, You will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans, and have overcome. And Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But the man replied, Why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. This is an interesting story because Jacob sends all of his possessions, all of his relatives across this river and he's alone to prepare to meet his brother who he sent emissaries out to try to soften him up, sent gifts out. Please don't kill me. Here's some nice gifts. You're just like your Thanksgiving. (laughs) And then a man wrestles with him. And which, when you're reading the story, you just go through this. Like, this happens all the time, right? Like I was camping and I sent my family across the river to set up and then a man wrestled with me till daybreak, right? It's just like thrown into the story. If you read this and you understand the context, this is uh, most solid theologians call this a pre-incarnation of Christ, meaning Christ came down in bodily form and fought with Jacob. Like... Christ came down, and they didn't have a cage then, but they just went at it on the side of the river. And I don't know, like, you've probably had times where you've questioned God, or you've wondered what God's doing, but he's never shown up while you're by a river and fought with you. Jacob's experience with God is such a unique experience that it actually changes his name. Changes his name. God, Jesus asks him, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. He says, what is your name? And he says, I'm the deceiver. Like, that's who I am. 
And Jesus says, not anymore, because you've actually wrestled with God and with man, and you have overcome them both. Jesus taps out against Jacob because he's tired of wrestling him. And he changes his name to Israel, which means the one who strives with God or one who wrestles with God. And he blesses him, and he leaves. But before he leaves, Jesus drills Jacob on the hip in such a way that it messes his hip up so that he limps for the rest of his life. Today's my son's birthday. So if you see him, say happy birthday. It is the most awkward thing in the world to be the pastor's son, so you know because he is hilarious, and I use him for examples frequently. He's serving the children uh, today because he's an awesome kid, uh, but if you see him, uh, he's the one that looks just like me and uh, acts just like me, unfortunately. Uh, but you can say happy birthday. My son is turning 14 today, which means sometimes, and you can't tell him this part, sometimes we're fighting, and I worry just for a second because he might hit me so hard that Things go dark for a minute. And I can't let him know that for his own good. And so sometimes I drill him in the hip. Right? I don't actually do that. He's not limping today. But I called up my dad and I said, Oh man, LJ got me the other day when we were just wrestling and, you know, roughhousing. And he's stronger than I anticipated. And my dad said, I still remember the last time we wrestled <laughs> because it was close. And it wasn't good for you to think that you could overcome me. And so if you're, like, if you're a dad and you have sons, you've had this moment where he's stronger than me now. And not because of him. It's just my back, right? Like, is. <laughs> But it's a combination of them getting stronger and you getting older. And Jacob, at this time, would have been 60 or 80 years old, like old. And he actually fights Jesus, who, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we know Jesus, when he lived in his human body, was probably a little chubby. And you can look that up. That's scriptural. I know all the Jesuses you've seen are like jacked and that kind of thing. That's probably not true. Jesus never went to the gym. He did eat paleo, but not by choice. When, when Jesus fought Jacob, old Jacob, Jesus has this moment where he thinks, this guy could beat me, and that's not good for him. And so he hits him on the hip, in such a way that Jacob limps the rest of his life. I don't know about you, but I have, uh, like I have scars. There's one right here, and that's a hockey scar uh, from my own skate. That was such a good crash. Uh, and as Americans, you don't understand that, but it was pretty awesome. And, and you probably have scars too, and some of your scars are good stories, right? You're like, this happened because I'm so tough. Like, this happened because I was in a situation that was so crazy that I got hurt and I have this scar forever. And some scars are cool like that. Well, Jacob limped the rest of his life. And people would say, oh, is your leg hurt? He says, no, I wrestled with God and he cheated. <laughs> Technically, it's not cheating because God can't sin, so God probably changed the rules momentarily because God can do that. But, 
But the rest of his life, Jacob limped. Jacob was completely and utterly changed, but he was not changed until God completely broke him. Do you see that? Jacob wrestles Jesus all night. And in the morning, Jesus says, all right, this is enough. What's your name? And he still says, I'm the deceiver. Jacob doesn't say, I'm the one who beat Jesus. Jacob says, I'm the deceiver. Jacob is changed by Jesus. He doesn't change himself. He wrestles with God until God completely breaks him. And some of you are wrestling with God. And you'll say, and you'll say, Pastor James, can you pray for me? I'm having doubts or I'm struggling with this. And what you don't know is I pray that God will break you in such a way that it changes you and forever you walk with a limp. You want me to pray that you win, right? Like I'm struggling with this, this part of my life. It seems like God's not doing what I want him to do. And you want me to pray that God will do what you want him to do. Nobody's going to ask me to pray for them anymore. (laughs) But I would actually encourage you to pray for yourself in that way. That God would take you to the breaking point where everything that you self-identify about yourself that isn't from God would be taken away. Jacob self-identified himself as a deceiver. He told people, "I'm I'm a heel grabber. I'm the heel grabber. I'm named heel grabber. And God wrestles him to the point that he's changed forever. And he changes his name. And in their culture, names meant something. And he changes his walk or his gait for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life, Jacob limps. And every step he takes, he remembers, oh yeah, God changed me. Oh yeah, God changed me. Oh yeah, God changed me. Every step. And they had no cars, so they were hitting their 10,000 every day. And he had 10,000 reminders every day that God changed him. See, just like you have physical scars, you have emotional or spiritual scars. And sometimes those are because God did things in your life that were difficult to you. And we think we want God to be like this uh, loving vending machine that just gives us the things we want. I put in prayers and Bible reading and church attendance, I get candy and goods, right? Uh, Prosperous life and all those kinds of things. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible looks at the way that you identify yourself unbiblically and he gets you beside a river and beats on you all night long. And he struggles with you. And he lets you come close to winning before he hurts you permanently. Where he changes who you are, whether you like it or not. You might not have ever experienced this, but if you talk to enough people who are old enough, who've walked with God seriously enough, long enough, they've got stories about God changing them in painful ways to where they've got scars, emotional or spiritual scars, where they say, oh, when I hear this, or when I say this, or when I sing this song, I start to tear up 
not because of the song, not because of anything, but because of what God did in my life at a time when I learned this song. I think that's why there's a lot of churches that like to fight over modern music or hymns and stuff like that, and I don't think it's a style thing. I think there's a lot of people who grew up and there was a time in their life when God changed them and they sang a particular hymn or they sang a particular song. I became a Christian at a Pentecostal church. For the first time ever, I responded to God uh, on this side of the stage and it was like reddish carpet in Kincardin, Ontario. I've Googled this church. It's a tiny little church. Their website's terrible. Uh, but there, this pastor was up at the front and he just... I like to say he scared the hell out of me and, and I just, because it was literally, I just didn't want to go to hell. I didn't know anything about Jesus, but I was up at the front. And to this day, I like charismatics more than I should. Like I watch charismatic TV shows and uh, not, you know, I don't put my hand on the screen and send them money or that kind of stuff. But, but if I'm watching a preacher, I prefer a charismatic one. And I'm a theology guy. I'm not a charisma, I'm not a charisma guy, but they changed my life. And the things that they did affected me permanently. And people can rip on Pentecostals and stuff like that and say they're legalists, but there's something in my... I kind of undercut them right there because I kind of think that's true, but there's, there's something in my heart that I still love them. Like your favorite team can be the Raiders, and you know, they're still the Raiders, and they kind of have that crummy stadium, but you still kind of love them. And... And it'll be cheaper to go to games when they move to Vegas. But the, only the Raider fans amen that. But, but there is this permanent change that God can make on your life. And it comes up. And it creates a depth to your spiritual life that wasn't there before. 